You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I am Alahe Azadi, a media reporter here at the Washington Post and also co-host of the podcast Post Reports. And I'm so pleased to be joined here today by award-winning author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie to discuss the ongoing trend of banning books and also the power of the written word. So Chimamanda, please, let's welcome her. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And we're doing handheld mics today, so. <laughs> so welcome to Washington Post Live, and I thought we could start the conversation by really just laying out the landscape, the state of book banning, because that's part of what we want to dig into here and to understand it. So PEN America, every year, they release an index of book banning in this country. They track it. And they found that last year, there was a 33% increase of book bans from the year before. I actually looked you up. You appear on this list several times. You have that distinction, I guess, is the word we could maybe use. Um, and also, the Washington Post has conducted a first of its kind of analysis of children's picture books and found that 75% of book ban challenges were with characters with LGBTQ characters, and 25% were about books accused of being, quote, anti-police. And another founding finding, I'm throwing so many statistics at you, is that the Post found that the majority of book bans in the 20, 2020 and 21 school year came from just 11 people. So that's sort of the, you know, the landscape that we're confronting here. So it's a lot to take in, but as an author, I wonder when you hear that, what do you see as the intellectual root of this move of book banning? Whew. I know, right? <laughs> Um, well, it's really lovely to be here, and I've been watching this um, the live stream, and it's just so nice to be part of this sort of this um, group of incredible women. Um, the, one of the problems with having little clips of you be part of the introduction is everything I wanted to say ha has been said in the clips. So I'm just <laughs> well, it's like, okay. I'm we can <laughs> say them again. It's not a problem. <laughs> so thank you all for coming. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go um, get coffee now. Y'all are good. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'm struck by, and I knew that, that the, the, I don't think the book banning in this country is so much about books as it is about this kind of um, you know, extreme polarization in this country. I think it's a symptom of it. I don't, think, I don't think we can talk about book banning without talking about polarization. Because really, the people banning these books don't actually read. I mean, many of them don't. It's true, though. They don't. So it's not as though they are sort of, you know, book lovers who are really dedicated. No, they don't read. I mean, I read a piece about a woman who was challenging so many books in her public library. And when she was asked if she had read them, she said no. So she just thought, oh, this is about black people. No, this is about gay people. No. Right. And, and so I think it's it, it's. It's worrying, obviously. I do have to say, though, that I'm in such good company. I mean, look at all the wonderful books that have been banned. Um, and banning doesn't work. Like, it doesn't I mean. How, how so? Because I, for example, if I heard a book had been banned, I would go read it. It would make it even more interesting. You know? Especially for young people, I would imagine, right? Exactly. It doesn't work. It's, just, it's, it's not a useful way of talking about. Um, I think maybe, I, I do think it's. I think it's reasonable to talk about um, what's appropriate for children, right? I think that's a conversation that we should have because 
I, I think there are some things that, you know, a child who's five doesn't need to know, a child who's 10, that sort of thing. Um, and I think, I think it's something to talk about. But I think that that legitimate conversation has been overtaken by, by political polarization. So it's been hijacked in some It way. has been. It has been. And when I think about what's happening, I mean, now apparently public libraries, as much as, as public schools, are having books challenged by people who do not read. Um, what worries me, though, is sometimes learning about people who give in to this. I mean, I, I really think it's important to stand up to this kind of nonsense. You know, and how does that look for an author, for example? I would like to go into a library and, and sort of see all kinds of books. I don't sit at home and think, oh my goodness, I've been banned. But Does it keep you up at night? No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'm in very good company. Right. But, but it's the larger idea of, of even the, that we can ban books. You know, that, that... So on the one hand, I think this started... I mean, apparently, sort of the, the root of it was COVID which I think was a time that was difficult for everyone. So I think we all kind of went slightly mad. And afterwards, people then started this thing about um, not wanting their children to be indoctrinated. And <laughs> I just think, I mean, when you ask about, I want to talk about it as a reader rather than as a writer. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so for me, it's a question of really resistance. I think that public libraries should say no. I think that that you know public schools should say no. Um, you know, I think we owe children the responsibility of of giving them knowledge or, or or allowing them access to knowledge. And there's a kind of there's a kind of courage I think that's lacking in in the way that this has been. I think. It, it, Sometimes I'm not even sure that I want to talk about it. So, so the, the title of this, you know, I just... Is it, is it because t putting too much light on it emboldens, you feel like? I think so. Oh, that's interesting. I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I've also read reporting about how school librarians, for instance, preemptively don't want to put books on their libraries because yep. they're concerned about this. Yep. So there's the chilling effect mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and particular subjects, which is also very telling, right? Yeah. It's, it's often subjects that have to do with, with groups that are um, minorities. And so I think there's also a question of power there, right? Because I don't know that anybody's banning books about, I don't know, people who came on the Mayflower. So I think we should talk, we should, I think it's important to think about that as well, that book banning is a politics and it's also, I think, about power. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and it also sounds like some of this conversation in this country is also related to this other conversation about how history is taught, Yeah, right? It's related, yeah? Um, you know, places like Florida, laws were passed that restrict how African-American history can be taught, what words, the framing. And how do you respond to the belief that children, certain children, should not feel uncomfortable or shouldn't feel discomfort, rather, when, when learning about history. Do you see these as related? I think they are related. I mean, if you're banning books about black people and, and black history, and if you're challenging the teaching of black history, um, you know, it's all connected. I mean, the idea that children should not be allowed to feel uncomfortable, I find it really astonishing. I mean, you know, and this is one of the things that I think on the political right, 
people will often say, well, facts don't care about your feelings. Mm. And it seems to me that this is one place where it's very apt. I mean, history is factual. It really shouldn't be about, um, you know, is the child going to feel bad? And I do think that if you teach history properly, children don't end up feeling bad. I think they end up feeling enlightened. And, and I'm a believer in stories. And so, I, so increasingly I've been thinking about um, what, what if we did more sort of stories in teaching history? So there's all this noise about CRT. Um, Critical race, race theory. theory. But <laughs> and many of the people who throw it around do not know what it means. Mm-hmm. I hardly knew what it meant myself <laughs> until recently. I don't think that there are lots of people in you know, elementary and high schools teaching children critical race theory. I don't think that's true at all. But it's been used as a reason to um, sort of hold back the teaching of African-American history. And I think the idea of theory is the problem. So I find myself thinking, what if? Right? What if, um, what if it was stories instead? What if every time um, a child had a lesson about... Um, I don't know, um, uh, I don't know um, how neighborhoods were formed in this country. That lesson must necessarily include how African-Americans were excluded. Not because they were poor, because they were black, right? What, and, and then you know, the, the child would hear stories about um, people who bought their houses and were sort of bullied out of their neighborhoods. Those are stories that actually happened. So you can't, I mean, so you're telling the stories, they happened. And, and I think by doing that, there's less of a, of, of a, I guess, opportunity for people to say, you're indoctrinating our children with theory, because you're telling them factual stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting also bringing up story, because you had this 2009, I'm going deep cut here, <laughs> TED Talk, the danger of a single story. Uh, and, you know, you highlighted how a single repeated perspective can turn into almost an absolute or singular truth. So when you look at where we are today, have you seen strides made in that regard? Do you feel like there's a broader recognition of the danger of the single story? Because a lot of what we're talking about is in some ways the perpetuation of that, right? Do I think strides have been made? No. Period. Next question. All right. <laughs> well, do you, do you feel like there's broader recognition um, by some? Um, performative recognition, yes. Mm. I think that there is a, I mean, so in talking about, and my goodness, 2009, I feel old. Um, <laughs> in talking about the danger of a single story, and I gave that talk really because, you know, because I'm a storyteller, because I'm a writer, and I really care about stories and sort of a wide range and diversity and nuance. I think that the root of good storytelling is texture and nuance. And I think we've, we've really lost that in, in the way that we have public conversations. So I'm not sure that we've made a lot of progress in, mm. in the single story, mm. sadly. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of this book banning conversation is it's, that flattened yep. conversation. Oof, all right, no hope there. <laughs> <laughs> However, I did want to talk about your most recent book, which is a children's book. And so speaking of, you know, we opened, I talked about children's picture books, your recent book about, it's a children's book. First of all, just tell us a little bit about that story, why you wanted to tell that story, and why did you want to write a children's book? I wanted to write a children's book because, um, because I had a child. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, before I had my daughter, my daughter is eight, and before I had her, people would say, why don't you write a children's book? And I would say, no, my vision is too dark. <laughs> really, my, my, my artistic vision is dark. I'm drawn to melancholy, I'm, you know. And I thought, I don't want to be responsible for traumatizing children because I actually love children. But, um, but I remember when my daughter was born, and it, you know, it's been the most magnificent thing that's happened to me. And I remember sort of just holding her when she was little and just feeling how, how precious the moment was, but also having that sense that even before the moment was gone, I was already mourning it. And, you know, and I would write things down and I kept thinking I'm going to have to write something. And then my parents died, um, which completely upended my life. I mean, I, I adored my parents that died in a short space of time. And then that's when, for some reason, suddenly writing a children's book became almost urgent for me. And I wrote it under a pseudonym. So I, didn't, I, I wrote it as Ngwa Grace James, which literally means daughter of Grace and James my parents. And I kind of love the idea of writing a book, you know, for my daughter as a daughter. And it's also a book about how my, my parents adored her. So it's really, it's an ordinary sort of, it's a day in the life of. We're in Lagos, um, where we spend half of the year. My daughter is sort of just wandering around with my scarf, um, you know, the scarf that I, and also I wanted to sort of, you know, do a, a little, you know, black woman shout out because most of the black women I know, we have things on our head when we sleep. Um, so I wanted to educate the world on this really important point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and why, why, why was it important to you to tell what felt in some ways like an ordinary story? You know what? Because increasingly, I think it's important to see that the ordinary is enough that the ordinary is okay, that we can find a lot to celebrate in just the ordinary. Because some, it seems to me now that sort of this heightened world we live in, there is almost, and I think this is true for many young people, a pressure to be, to be different in some way. To, to, and I think ordinary is fine. You know, just a lovely, simple day. There is a lot of joy and, and love, I think, that's to be found in the ordinary. Yeah, and the ordinary is what is so crucial to make the world go around, right? It is, it is. And, and, and it's something I think that we all have access to, mm -hmm. right? We all have access to the ordinary. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question. And <laughs> it's about the future. And also, you know, the present, your present analysis. In 2017, I'm sure many people here and watching at home were, are familiar with your guidelines for how to raise a feminist daughter that was published in 2017. You're a parent raising a daughter, how challenging is that work today to raise a feminist daughter compared to even when you wrote that? See, the thing about, um, I wrote that before I had her. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, how did your perspective shift? Mm. <laughs> I can tell you it's very easy to write and pontificate about raising a child when you do not have a child. Right. So if, you're, if anybody's ever going to write about raising a child, do it before you have a child. Because then when the child comes, you think, my goodness, this is a bit more complex than I <laughs> Did anyone <laughs> come up to you and say that? I wonder. Um, no, people usually ask me if I'm following my own directive. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. And, and I am, actually. I'm trying. But that's the thing. It's about trying. Mm. Right. It's about um, there's never going to be perfection. And actually, I write in the book that you can do everything right and your child will still turn out not right. You know, I mean, you, you, you sort of have to hope. But I am trying. We are trying, my husband and I. And, and really, it's just about, for me, making sure that I'm a full person outside of being a mother. Mm. Although motherhood is so important to me. But I think it's so important for women to, you know, to, to live in a society that allows them to be full people. 
Um, and the other thing is not to raise my daughter with sort of preconceived ideas of what a girl should be. Right? Um, that child, however, is extremely girly. I had been hoping that, you know, sort of in the revolutionary spirit of my ideas, that my daughter would reject femininity, but nope. She's all for dolls. So <laughs> She went all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and also, I mean, I, I don't want, I've, it's important to me not to be the crazy feminist mother. Um, because actually when she was born, I wanted to sort of say, you know, we're not going to give her dolls. She's going to, you know, I'm going to buy her little engineering STEM toys. But it's important not to be the crazy feminist mother, you know? Because <laughs> it's also about her allowing <laughs> yes. to have to be able to have that choice, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I want her to be her full self. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, we could keep talking for another 20, 30, 40 minutes, but unfortunately, we will have to leave it there. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, please, everyone, thank her for joining us. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kathleen Koch, a best-selling author and longtime Washington correspondent. You know, we sentimentally refer to retirement very often as the uh, golden years, right? But is that idyllic vision, is that really achievable based on what most of us have set aside? I mean, think about it, be honest with yourselves, All right? Well, here to walk us through that is Courtney Gibson. Courtney is the Chief Institutional Client Officer at TIAA. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you, Kathleen. Courtney, starting in 2031, 2031, the number of Americans over 65 by that point in time <clears throat> will be roughly double what it was in 2008, and we all know that's because of the baby boom generation, right? So, Courtney, how are they set to um, live out their golden years? Well, you know, we can, we can speak in generalities today, and, and that's what I'll do, and it depends. It depends on a number of factors. Have they saved? How much have they saved? Did they participate in their workplace retirement plan? Did they have access to a pension plan or defined benefit plan? Did their workplace plan have access to lifetime income or that guaranteed paycheck in retirement? There's a lot of factors that, that go into that, but you know, I wanna, I wanna maybe put things in context for a second. So when we think back to 1975, that was prior to, to me actually being here. I'm a millennial, I'm one of the <laughs> oldest, but you know, work with me on that. But you think back to 1975, and this is important though, 70% um, of Americans that were are part of a retirement plan actually had a defined benefit. Pensions. They right? had pensions. And that's 70%. Changed. Today, Kathleen, do you know what that number is? I have no idea. 12%. 12? 12? 12%. What happened? Well, what happened was the defined contribution programs came into play. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, with many defined contribution programs in 401k, and we'll touch on 403b, which is where TIAA has been prominent and prevalent in ensuring secure retirements. But in the 401k market, in the default, which is where most plan participants go, where you don't actually go in and pick the stocks and bonds you want, you go in and say, we're gonna go into this target date fund and I'm gonna retire in 50 years, I'm gonna set it and forget it. That's generally what populations are doing today. And unfortunately, 401k plans don't have 
that guaranteed retirement paycheck in it the way that, for example, the 403B market does. So you think about higher ed, healthcare. For many, many years, those populations actually had annuities in the default. And what did that do? It basically served as a quasi-defined benefit plan. So when the teachers and doctors, instead of having to worry about their retirements, they could say, you know what? I got my guaranteed paycheck. I know I can work. I can do what I want. Here you go. So we're here, though, at the yeah. Global Women's Summit. Help us understand why this problem disproportionately impacts women and also workers of color. Well, it's interesting. So I want to finish just really quickly on the last one, because something actually happened about 20 years ago. It was something called open architecture, which came in and it actually took away the ability for many of the plans to just kind of say with fiduciary protections that they could have these guaranteed paychecks in the default and in, in, even in higher ed. So what ended up happening, 403B or the higher ed and healthcare started to look more like 401K. And many people don't even realize it, but they're actually off track for retirement. They're off track. They don't have, they think they have a guaranteed paycheck in retirement, but they don't. And disproportionately to go to women and African Americans, not only do we have a situation where women tend to, like the, I think we were just talking about this, we tend to be caregivers. We tend to have children. And oftentimes we might actually take some time off beyond maternity leave and leave the workforce. And what happens when we come back? You're behind. And we already know, I mean, statistics have shown us, I'm not making this up, women make less money than men. So not only are you now working a little bit less, you are earning less, and oh, by the way, we live longer. We live longer. So men on average are about 75 years, women live to 80, so we're living longer, we have less, we've earned less. We end up with 30% less in retirement, and yet our money has to last longer. So women are disproportionately impacted because of the wonderful contributions that we provide to society without having a monetary connection to them, generally speaking. That's my nice way of saying it. we don't get paid for a lot of the things we do, and it's not don't going towards that? our retirement. <laughs> and so women are disproportionately impacted. And with blacks, it's different. And this isn't debatable. Um, there are systemic issues that have impacted African Americans, whether it's been from political, social, economic disparities. At points in time, black people couldn't own a home. Well, the number one way that Americans actually pass on generational wealth is from what? Home ownership. You can't own a home, you can't pass it on. How do you pass on wealth? Through your homes, you do that. Well, unfortunately, you have generations now that are first generation homeowners first generations passing on wealth. What does that mean? You also end up saving less. You end up saving less. African Americans, and I'll give you the statistic just for retirement for a second. 54% of African Americans do not have enough money to maintain their current lifestyle in retirement. 54%. That's a huge, huge number. But then again, 55 million Americans more broadly don't even have access to a workplace retirement plan. We're at a $4 trillion retirement gap in America right now. It's a crisis. This isn't, this isn't a game. It is a real life crisis, yet we have people that think they're doing the right thing. They're in these target date funds. They think, oh, I'm contributing to my 401k. I'll have enough in retirement. And they aren't being told it may not be enough. And then you have people that don't even recognize 
that these workplace plans, even when they have access to them, are for them. So what do we do about it? Now, I know that um, <clears throat> TIAA was a, was a major advocate of a measure that Congress passed recently, and that's the, um, the SECURE Act, yeah. and that was to tackle the retirement savings Absolutely. crisis. But what do we need to do beyond that? Because I understand that TIAA is pushing something called a Retirement Bill of Rights. So what is that and how would it work? Well, well we're not pushing it. What we're doing is we're, we're gathering the coalition of the willing, <laughs> as we like to call it. We're gathering right. champions, both in the public and private sector, to say, let's solve this problem. So I talked about the fact that at one point, annuities were taken out of the default, right? That guaranteed paycheck that a lot of professors and healthcare providers, it was taken out. Why? Because we live in a pretty litigious society. And unfortunately, you know, things happened and they said, oh, we're gonna change these laws, we're gonna create this open, and the, 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 what happened there, people thought they were doing the right thing, but what happened there is the protections around this were missing. So with the SECURE Act, right. you ended up getting and having the ability to say, we believe this should be a part of retirement plans. Giving people the ability to have a guaranteed paycheck in retirement should be there. And oh, by the way, we also believe that workplace providers should have auto-enrollment. They should auto-enroll you, why? Because it's a lot less likely that you're gonna decide, I'm gonna opt out, right? It's the same way that you participate in Medicare and Social Security and everything else, right? You kind of figure out how to get by without it, and so why not auto-enroll people, and if they really can't make ends meet, they'll take themselves out. But we know already somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of people don't take themselves out, so why not auto-enroll? And in the same way that you have the ability when you get a raise, Kathleen, you know, when you get a raise or you get that next promotion, the same way that you're paying your current self, how do you pay your future self in retirement? That's called auto-escalation. You get a 10% bump in your, in, your, in your compensation today, give yourself a little bump for your future self and put that towards your retirement. If there's a match at your company, a match. A lot of people are leaving free money on the table. They're not even contributing up to the match. The least you can do is contribute up to where you're going to get a match. And if you got a little bit more, put that towards it. That's how we start tackling this. So TIAA has created what we call a Retirement Bill of Rights. We believe fundamentally that people have the ability and should have the ability to retire with dignity, hands down. And it's not just your problem or your problem or my problem. It's society's problem at this point in time. If people don't retire with dignity, whether you like it or not, they're going to have to be taken care of at some point. So how about we start that today? How about we get together that coalition of the willing and say we are going to ensure that we start to tackle this today and not tomorrow? So how are you getting the word out about it? Because, I mean, and especially to young people, right, who really need to be hearing this information now because I, I just, I can't imagine it's easy to get Gen, Gen Zers, right, and millennials excited about saving right now and much less saving for retirement. You're right, you're right. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's interesting. A lot of millennials actually saw their grandparents, in some cases parents, that had pension plans. And unfortunately, just as I talked about, they think that just even contributing a little bit, which is the right thing to their 401k, that they're going to be secure in retirement. And they're not. That's kind of scary. But social media, the ability to kind of watch things on the news, people like you and I talking about this and making it simple and relatable, helps people to understand that it's, it's not as hard as we think. 
it's not as hard as we think. In the same way that we're investing today in various things, the same way that you're making sure that you're stable today, invest in that future self. That's how you make it exciting, right? People always talk about, oh, millennials don't think about the future, even if you use fear, right? Like millennials have lived through two and three financial crises at this point. So if nothing else, we actually know what it's like to think that you're gonna have something and all of a sudden it disappears in the market in 2008. I'm not talking, you know, me personally, but you know, you, you, you may or may not have lived through that. And so being able to say, you know what? Courtney, I'll use me as an example. You have the ability to not only have a portfolio with stocks and bonds and diversified in the way that we've heard about in the past, but you should have this component in here that's called an annuity, nobody cares what it's called, but guaranteed retirement. This part you will not lose. Put a little bit away that you know at the end of the day it's protected, protected. That gives people security and for me, that's, that's exciting. Security is exciting. So in closing, are you optimistic? Of course I am, Kathleen. <laughs> I have four little babies. I have no choice Aww. but to be optimistic about our future. But, but I'll tell you what, what, what really excites me. It is the youth. Mm -hmm. It is the children and the teenagers and the young adults today that are saying, we care about tomorrow, whether it's our environment, whether it's social activities, whether it's financial implications, whether it's doing the right thing while simultaneously being able to make a profit, who to thunk you can do both at the same time. I'm optimistic about that. The technological innovations, the AI, the ability to say, we're gonna take what we have and make it better. And that's what we're seeing today. So I am, I'm very optimistic and we will solve this retirement crisis. It may not be in my lifetime, but we're gonna put a nice dent in it and, and TIA is gonna help lead the way. All right, Courtney Gibson, Chief Institutional Client Officer at TIAA. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, if you would like to share your thoughts, feel free to tweet hashtag postlive. And now stay put, my friends at the Washington Post. We'll be right back. And now back to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon. I'm Akila Johnson. I'm a health disparities reporter here at the Washington Post. Post. Hello. <laughs> and, uh, this afternoon, I haven't had enough coffee, clearly. This afternoon, I am uh, very happy to be joined by two wonderful women, Alicia Roth Weigel and Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. And Alicia, I want to start with you. And it's going to be like a, let's start with kind of a broad question in terms of gender when we're thinking about gender. And um, you recently said, you know, one of, the main, you're one of the main subjects of a documentary about the lives and rights of intersex people. And intersex people, as we heard and you say in the introduction, make up about 2% of the population, which you have previously said is about the same amount as redheads. Yeah. Did I get that right? Okay. And so, but there's still so little that's known about intersex health. So let's, again, start with this kind of basic question when we think about gender and intersex health and talk a little bit about what exactly that is. Yeah, so first off, I'd like to pose a question to the audience and ask, quick show of hands, how many of y'all were born with a body? <laughs> <laughs> That's all of us, right? And I think it's nice to acknowledge that both because we're living through such divisive times and that's actually the one thing that all human beings have in common is that we all have bodies and it's really nice to be able to latch on to something like that right now. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's also the one thing that we are most ashamed to talk about. So I'm gonna ask y'all, is it okay if I talk without stigma, without shame about my body on this stage? 
Is that cool with y'all? <laughs> okay, great. We're cool. Um, so yeah, I was born intersex, which as you heard in the introduction, we're around the 2% of the world's population that is born with physical sex traits. So that can be combinations of hormones and chromosomes, external genitalia and internal reproductive organs that don't fit neatly into those male, female boxes. Uh, what that meant for me is that I actually have XY chromosomes. And despite being born looking entirely female on the outside, Instead of being born with a uterus and ovaries, I was born with internal testes. Unfortunately, they were removed from me, forcibly removed from me as an infant. I was sterilized, or given that I was born with balls, let's call a spade a spade, I was castrated. And I think when we hear about forced sterilization, we often think about like other countries, far off places. It happens in board-certified hospitals by accredited physicians across the country every single day to intersex people like me. And there are a variety of reasons that are given for that. Overall, it's because there is a huge societal stigma against bodies that don't fit the norm. And um, what I would like to assert and have you y'all walk away understanding is that I think everyone in here probably understands that sexuality is not a binary or not just gay or straight. There's a whole range in between. Gender, people are starting to understand, is also not a cut and dry binary. Um, you're not just a man or a woman. There's this whole non-binary spectrum. But sex is also a spectrum. It affects intersex people like me, who are born with traits that are center to the closer to the center of that spectrum, but it also affects everyone in this room. Some cisgender women have really big boobs and some are flat chested. Some cisgender men can grow a full beard and some can grow, barely grow facial hair. So all of our sex traits exist on a spectrum, right? We as intersex people are just a little bit closer to the center of that spectrum and society likes things that fit neatly into boxes. So as I mentioned, rather than changing the birth certificate to fit the reality of our bodies, unfortunately, they change our bodies to fit on that piece of paper. You know, it's really interesting because I'm listening to you talk about bodies <coughs> and quite often, and you know, Representative jump in here because when I hear conversations about gender, there seems to have been a push to step away from so much focus on bodies and to think more broadly about the spectrum on which gender kind of exists, which you touched on a little bit. And so I guess I'm curious as we're thinking about gender, what exactly does that mean when we're talking gender? And what does it mean? And what does it mean to to you? To if that me, makes any sense. So, just to clarify, what is the what is gender? Like, yeah, is that the, like, the overarching? Well, right, because I guess we're we're talking. So often you hear, right? We're talking intersex, but then yeah. we're also talking gender. So if we can just have a bit of a primer on like gender. Yeah. So we're talking about sense of self. We're talking okay. about who you know, who do you wake up and feel like in the morning. Um, you know, when we talk about sexuality, you'll say who do you wake up feeling attracted to. Mm. Um, when we talk about gender, I often say like you know, there's a imagine a building with a blueprint. Um, you know, one blueprint says male. One blueprint says female. Um, I've got the blueprint that says female, and when I was born. I looked at the construction site and up was the building that said male. And it's like, that's not, that's not right, that's wrong. And that creates a sense of incongruence mm. within self. And so many people, you know, they walk through uh, their daily life knowing well, I was born a woman, I was labeled a woman, I feel like a woman, that's who I am. Um, and that sense of self comes very naturally for transgender individuals. It's a little bit different. It's often you feel as if, 
in one of my first ever interviews, I talked about when people talk about gender with a trans person, it's almost like someone is looking directly over your shoulder mm. and talking about a person who they see, who's done the things that you've done, who sounds a whole lot like you, but sure as hell isn't you. And when we talk about gender, that's because that's, they're seeing a gender that is not the sense of self that you have. And when we talk about gender affirming care, that is the care, the broad um, array of care that allows trans people to come into line with our sense of self. So in, given that, what would you like people to reconsider when they, or should people be reconsidering things when they think about gender and how we talk about gender currently? I think people, starting from the very beginning, people need to trust people when we're talking about ourselves. You know, I often say when I'm talking across the aisle on just politics broadly, you trust that someone came to their beliefs naturally, that they believe their lives are full of nuance, um, they hold opinions full of nuance. When, you're, when we're talking about gender, trust people when they tell you who they are. Um, and trust, as uh, Alicia's talking about, that we talk about um, you know, modes of, of sex and modes of gender, um, that we're recognizing more and more that these are bimodal, that there are two large peaks, male and female, and that there's an array in between. Um, and for trans people, sometimes we're in that large peak. You know, I am in the large peak of female. Mm -hmm. It's just, I was assigned over here. So I think for me, that is the, the beginning of the conversation around gender. And then when it comes to healthcare, specifically, I would say we, we talk to our doctors. We trust our doctors. If we're talking about trans healthcare for youth, we're talking about children um, and teenagers who are having conversations with parents, with therapists, with their doctors, and are following the medical guidelines of every major medical association. And in the same way that if your child had heart disease, heart Marfan's disease or something, you would trust all of the medical research, all of the medical professionals, when we talk about gender, particularly as it relates to healthcare for trans, and, uh, trans people, that we lead with that. Trust our doctors and trust the individuals when they tell you who they are. And when it comes to uh, gender-affirming care for intersex people as well, unfortunately, we are not even given a seat at the table with our parents and doctors to be part of this decision-making. For me, my intersex variation was internal. As I mentioned, I've always looked femme on the outside. Despite having XY chromosomes, I don't respond to androgens or man, male hormones. And so even in utero, I was like, nah, I don't want that XY blueprint. I'm gonna come out looking the way I want. I've never followed rules. I guess that happened before I was born. Um, but unfortunately, when intersex kids are born, some look less binary on the outside. They might have genitalia that doesn't fit neatly into one of those categories like mine did. And there is an immediate intervention that is done by surgeons to push their genitalia one way or the other. Usually, it is defaulted to make them female because as one surgeon has been quoted to say, it's easier to dig a hole than it is to build a pole. And so they default to making these children female. Sometimes the children grow up and are like, hey, I don't identify as a woman, no one ever asked me. And then they're trapped in a body that was created for them without any, with them having any say in the matter. And so ironically, when you look at these bans on gender affirming care for transgender children, these are trans kids who want access to surgery and hormones with their consent. Oftentimes these are life or death decisions for them. These same surgeries and hormones are forced on intersex kids without our consent. For me, it happened before I could even speak 
I was an infant. And so when the justification is used that these trans healthcare bans are to protect children, I politely ask these legislators, okay, if you think gender-affirming care on, on children is child abuse or you liken it to Nazi war crimes, so you're okay with abusing some children? You're okay with abusing intersex kids? You're okay with forcing surgeries and hormones onto the bodies of children who have never asked for it and denying the same surgery and hormones to kids who desperately want it. And that just shows that none of this is based in logic, biology, fact, what's healthiest for children. It's based on wanting to normalize children into categories that the rest of the world is more comfortable looking at. Let's stay with politics for a minute, because yeah. you both mentioned politics, and as you're talking policies, ultimately what you're talking about <clears throat> in politics that deal with the politics of gender and the politics of, of sexuality and the politics of a whole host and spectrum of things, right? And so, you know, Representative Zephyr, you decided to run for office um, in the Montana State Legislature uh, soon after they passed three bills restricting uh, LGBTQ rights in one week. And then you became the first openly transgender person to be elected to the state legislature. <laughs> and then we fast forward to the spring and uh, you were banned from the House until the end of the legislative session. Talk to us about all of these experiences and then thinking what Alicia is saying about politics and what that says to you about the politics of gender. Yeah, so given I've seen the clock there, I'll <laughs> zip up and say this, you know, throughout the legislative session, one of the interesting things is the amount of attacks that we saw and the breadth of them. We saw, I would often say we saw bills targeting uh, trans people's past, presents, and futures. When you ban memoirs, you ban an LGBTQ person's past, the story of how they came to understand who they are, which also provides a gap for someone's future, to say, oh, I can make it to the other side. Yep. When you ban drag, you're banning an art form that is deeply connected to what it means to be LGBTQIA in this country. And we talk about Stonewall, we often talk, we talk about the fight there. We often we forget the fact that this stemmed from three articles of clothing laws. Um, we saw bills attempting to define sex as binary, and I stood up in that uh, session and said, you could not legislate sex as binary any more than you could legislate that the earth is flat. Mm. Yes. We, trans people exist, intersex people exist. And interestingly, what we saw, when we talk about how that impacts policy, we saw, you know, we often, um, one of the questions that far-right um, people will often try to bring forward is, a, what is a woman, what is a woman? And interestingly, 12 states led by Republicans, tried to answer that question. We saw 12 bills attempting to define sex. In Montana, they provided three different definitions. And every time they brought one up, someone, the medical community came up and said, this excludes a large swath of people. They revised it. This excludes a large swath of people. And eventually they said, well, it's okay that it doesn't account for you know, a good half of intersex conditions because really it's about hurting the trans people. Really it is about targeting that community. And when I stood up on the gender-affirming care ban, what we saw is that it wasn't enough to pass the policies. We were seeing a group of people who had a supermajority, full control of the legislature, who said, we actually do not want marginalized communities to stand up and push back against this policy, and we will flex our muscle um, in order to make sure that they remain silent. Mm -hmm. Speaking of politics a little bit, I know that you have done some advocating and advocacy on the Texas floor legislature yes. when it comes to um, Wendy Davis, right, with the so-called bathroom 
Yeah. I don't like the term bathroom ban or the bathroom, bathroom bills. bills. Well, that's how we colloquially refer to it. And I write about this extensively in my book, Inverse Cowgirl. Not reverse cowgirl, though that's fun too. Um, <laughs> inverse cowgirl because I'm intersex in Texas. Get it? <laughs> um, but yeah, I came out for the first time as intersex. I was working with a woman named Wendy Davis who used to be a state senator in the state of Texas who filibustered for something like 16 hours to kill a bill that would have blocked abortion access in Texas back when we had that, <laughs> the good old days. Um, anyway, she was my mentor. I came out to her first, but decided to come out publicly for the first time in front of the Texas Senate before even my own brother knew <laughs> this about my identity, because only my parents and the doctors ever knew. They, they tell us to never share our truth because we'll be made fun of or we'll never find a good husband one day. Um, and so I came out for the first time in this Senate hearing because they were trying to pass the bathroom bill, and I kept hearing them use this justification, like, biological sex is cut and dry, and once we go back to that, all these trans people will go back where they came from, or whatever. And I decided that my story could help shed some light on this for them, because sex is not cut and dry. And basically, I wanted to ask them, you know, before you try to pass discriminatory legislation, you should at least open a biology textbook first. <laughs> and um, so, thank God we killed that bill that day, but we have seen a slew of bills since then, the most in uh, anti-LGBT bills in the history of the United States this past year in Texas. Um, and they're constantly trying to define something that, again, like, the boxes don't exist. We do. That's an excellent Excellent, excellent point that I think I just want to have Representative Zephyr have the last word, but it's on this it's on the same theme that we're talking about. Right. And so as we're thinking about how to conclude this conversation and what you want people to take away from this from this discussion, where do you really think the narrative is going or should go when it comes to gender as it exists on what is currently a binary scale or is that is that concept being blown up? So I think it's important to acknowledge that what we're seeing now, so much of the attacks on trans people today are echoes of attacks on gay people in the 80s and 90s. You know, we have uh, the detransitioners, the same half dozen detransitioners being flown around, much like the same ex-gays were flown around uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Back then it was terms like recruiting. And now we're hearing terms like grooming. So we see the way that these are echoes of one another. And we know the goal is to peel off one group at a time and say, OK, this is the, the group that we want to target most. And we're going to target trans people because we think we can peel them away. And before we target trans people fully, because we saw what happened with the bathroom ban in North Carolina, we're actually going to just target trans athletes. And we're going to peel that group away. And then the next one and the next one. But we see that when it comes to the anti-trans animus, um, it is not in part. It is not a single piece of legislation. Uh, the attacks are broad. They are targeting every aspect of our life. There's a, in Montana, one of those things would, when I die, would mark me as male in my burial certificate. There's no reason for that, but we see those attacks. So if you are looking for how do you respond to that, the first and foremost is going to be to listen to LGBTQ people, listen to trans people when they tell you who they are. 
be open to have these conversations, and also understand the way in which this fight is connected to so many of the fights that we're fighting. We talked about the menopause conversation earlier. Trans people are often talking to their doctors and they're saying, hey, the research we have is actually only on cisgender menopausal women. That's what we can talk about with you. If you're a trans person who wants your doctor to believe you, we are in resonance with disability rights activists, with, with women broadly, with the BIPOC community. We are understanding the fight for access to healthcare is not just a trans issue, but when they come after us in this moment, we are fighting for all of us and our access to the health care we deserve. Absolutely. And the only addition is when you're having these conversations, don't erase intersex voices. The I in LGBTQI plus stands for intersex, not invisible. Hell yeah. That is a great way to end this conversation. I am so grateful for both of you, Thank you. being here with us. Unfortunately, we're out of time. As you can see, we can continue talking for many, 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 many <laughs> more minutes and hours about this. But I'm going to have to leave it there. Alicia Rothweigel, Representative Zoe Zephyr, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.